Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Well, hello there and welcome to uh, Monday edition of Lynn Cullen Still Alive. It's December 7 in the god-awful year of 2020. And uh, December 7, a day that will live in infamy, indeed. I wonder if the Japanese uh, acknowledge the date <laughs> like we do. I suspect not. <laughs> do you, you think December 7th is a day that lives in infamy in Japan? You would think it would, but I suspect not. I don't know never occurred to me, you know, hadn't thought of stepping in those shoes and taking a perspective, uh, you know, that away. Anyway, um, here we are, <clears throat> uh, a lot to talk about. Um, I, I just came upon a, something that sort of astonished me for some reason <laughs> in one week. Um, this archaic, maddening body called the Electoral College will meet, <laughs> will vote, and will officially make Joe Biden the 46th president of the United States of America in one week. And that is so mind-blowing, given that the vast majority of Republicans, voters and office holders, national office holders, will still not publicly acknowledge that Joe Biden won. The uh, I'm sure you probably know this at the Washington Post, you know, had the good idea of, hey, let's contact all the um, congressional Republicans, House and Senate. That's 249 people. And uh, let's just ask them, <laughs> oh, do you? Uh, well, they actually asked them three questions. The number one question they asked all Republicans in the Congress was, who won the election? And uh, the second question was, do you support or oppose Donald Trump's continuing efforts to claim victory? And number three, if Biden wins a majority in the Electoral College, which of course he will, will you accept him? as the legitimately elected president of the United States. The responses, I guess not surprising, although it grieves me, angers me to say so. Of those three, excuse me, 249 Republicans who sit in the Congress of the United States, only 27 
answered the Washington Post question correctly by saying that Joe Biden had won the election. 27. Two, who knows which idiots, I think I know one, two of them actually said Donald Trump won the election. And the overwhelming majority did what Republicans in Washington have done for the last four years. They hid under their desks. They kept their mouths shut. They ducked and covered their asses. So fearful are they of Donald Trump and his crazed minions. So um, those 27, uh, Donald Trump has immediately, of course, demanded their names. I guess he's going to, I don't know what, make sure they get death threats. I guess that would be one thing that would happen. Um, As to the question, do you support or oppose Trump's continuing effort to claim victory That number then drops. So even though 27 congressional Republicans said Biden won, only nine said they opposed Trump's efforts to continue (laughs) to claim victory. And understand that most people won't even say, they don't say, they simply ducked. They wouldn't answer the question. Now, the loathsome Kelly Loeffler, who was appointed to the Senate seat in Georgia, she's never won an election, um, and is now in one of the runoff elections in Georgia, had a debate last night in which three times she was pointedly asked who won Georgia. And she refused to answer. I just, um, this is so appalling. I don't know um, the, the cowardice, the cowardice and lack of honor to the oaths they took of the vast majority of one of our political parties. We have two political parties. I mean, granted, there are fringe ones, but there are two throughout my lifetime, certainly. And I don't know how a Republican Party goes forward. I don't know. I'll tell you, Abe Lincoln is rolling around in his grave. So no matter what, no matter that 222 Republican senators and Congress people refuse to say that uh, Joe Biden won, eight million votes. Ample votes in the Electoral College, too, refused to say he won. 
So that's a absolute overwhelming majority of Republican national office holders who are actively undermining our democracy. Something. And it's scary. Just a heads up, if you're following uh, what's going on with COVID in our neck of the woods, at uh, 2 p.m., the governor and uh, the health secretary, Rachel Levine, will be holding a news conference. Um, I don't know if they're going to announce any further mandated actions, but uh, uh, we seem to be really frighteningly out of control. And I, I, I have little hope because of the continued behavior of so many, so many Americans who just refuse, refuse to do the right thing. It's mind-blowing. It, it brings me to what? an obituary I saw. Let me find it for you. Um, This is not from around here, and I'm not going to read it uh, all. But, wow. This is the obituary for a man named Marvin J. Farr, who lived in Kansas. He was a... He was a doctor, a veterinarian and a farmer. And this is part of his obit. Dr. Marvin James Farr, 81, of Scott City, Kansas, passed away December 1st in isolation at Park Lane Nursing Home. He was preceded in death by more than 260,000 Americans infected with COVID-19. He died in a room not his own, being cared for by people dressed in confusing and frightening ways. He died with COVID-19, and his final days were harder, scarier, and lonelier than necessary. He was not surrounded by friends and family. Marvin was born May 23rd, 1939, in Modoc, Kansas. He was born into an America recovering from the Great Depression and about to face World War II. He was born into times of loss and sacrifice difficult for most of us to imagine. Americans would be asked to ration essential supplies and send their children around the world to fight and die in wars of unfathomable destruction. Marvin died in a world where many of his fellow Americans refused to wear a piece of cloth on their faces to protect one another. There is more, but I think that is a pretty, pretty, damning comparison of Americans of my parents' generation and of our 
current American population. Mind-blowing, really. Mind-blowing. Now, let's see where I'm going. Hey, by the way, so tomorrow um, Susan's going to be joining us. And then Wednesday, I had the brilliant idea of uh, asking Sally Wigan to come and spend the hour with us. I've been seeing a lot more of her because she has so incredibly kindly uh, come to walk my dog uh, three, four times a week, uh, spelling my son who's been doing yeoman's duty in that regard. And um, I'm just uh, so grateful. She's a pretty wonderful human being and she can be very funny and very smart. And so I think it'd be fun to have her have her on on Wednesday. Okay. And anyway, I can tell, even though I've just done one full week of the show since my, since my surgery and convalescence, I, um, it's hard. (laughs) It's hard guys. It really is. Um, let me take a, a, just a moment to, a moment of silence for the poor people of Georgia. I just want to say, you know, you and I, most of us, have finally come out of that horror of the constant barrage on our television screens and radio and, and uh, cell phones and computers and social media and yard signs and news about the election. Can you imagine being in Georgia? God almighty. God help them. And God, I hope, (laughs) have them do the right thing. Keith writes, thank you so much for recommending and promoting the Tom Sokolowski documentary. I shared the video with my mother who worked with Tom when she was an assistant to the president of the Carnegie Museums in the 1990s. She adored Tom and loved that you always knew where you stood with him. That's so true. She also brought up an interesting point. You don't hear about the Warhol as much now as you did when he ran it. Well, you betcha. Ain't that the truth? He made it. He made it into a global phenomenon, a must visit for, you know, any any major celebrity coming into Pittsburgh, um, they would, he would arrange for them to come and he'd give them personal appearance, you know, tours. And he, he was an astonishing uh, PR guy and marketer and, um, and provocateur, but all with a purpose. And uh, yeah, no one since has come close to uh, doing what he did uh, for that museum. I believe it's the largest single artist museum in the world. The only other single artist museum I've personally ever been to is 
the Rodin Museum in uh, in France. But um, I don't know. You know, there's not a Picasso Museum. There's not. It's it's ah, it's a very unusual uh, thing. Yeah, ever since I watched that documentary, and again, it's on my Facebook page or on YouTube, I can't get them out of my head again, and um, that's good, because he was remarkable, and uh, he made a difference in this world. So thank you uh, for that, Keith. I really do appreciate that. I um I maybe you saw these um stats uh like I did uh over the weekend but it is mind blowing how incompetent is not even the is not the right word I mean I'm I value words and I'm trying to find the right one. How reckless, how potentially criminal in its recklessness the uh, Trump administration's response to uh, COVID-19 and the resulting horror and tragedy of so many deaths that need not have occurred. And we, because, you know, we live where we live, and it just seems like, well, what what could somebody do? Look at this thing. Well, again, if you compare us, the United States, now pretty much a laughing stock in the world, And you can imagine the schadenfreude that people feel toward, you know, us, the exceptional Americans strutting around, always telling other people what they should do, other nations, what they should do, acting like we're such hot, wondrous beings. And boy, oh boy, as I've said more than once, COVID-19 and Donald Trump unmasked us. So let's just compare us with one other country, okay? South Korea. Granted, not the same size, but we make, it doesn't matter, we can factor that in. Both South Korea and the United States got their first COVID case on the same day, okay? So this is something that we have, both of those countries had it presented to them here, here's a challenge for you, at the exact same time. And that was in January, right? So it's a year ago. It's a year ago. Done a year of this. More people have died 
in the United States over just a five-hour period on one day, December 3rd. More people died in the United States on December 3rd than died in South Korea since January. In one day, two thousand seven hundred fifty three people died in America of COVID on December third. I don't know that anybody did die in South Korea that day, but in the entire year since COVID showed up in their country, 536 people have died. And what the obvious conclusion is, is that the government of South Korea acted aggressively to keep their death toll down, to keep their citizens safe. It is the most important duty of a president, right? To protect the country, to protect the citizens. And as I said, the failure of the Trump administration to do so when we can see, because of the success of other nations that acted, was clearly reckless. It was malfeasance. It was a refusal to help. And given the populations are different, since January 20th of this god-awful year, for every South Korean who has succumbed to this virus, it's the same virus in South Korea as is here, okay? In South Korea, for every South Korean who has died of COVID, 515 Americans have died. And the population of the United States is less than seven times that of South Korea. So if seven Americans died for each one South Korean, we would have done an amazing job and obviously a doable job. And literally hundreds of thousands of Americans would not have fallen ill. And 10 upon 10,000 of Americans would not be in early graves. This cannot be forgotten. And this cannot be forgiven. 
Okay, that brings us to something that is, whoa, is a real difficult ethical issue. Oh, I think I got a call or maybe I should let them in before I get on that. Go ahead. Go ahead, please. Hello, Lynn. I hope you're being okay, like me, sort of. Yeah, no, I'm doing, listen, I got, ever since I heard Sokolowski's uh, comment to this woman who was bitching and moaning about everything, he said, it's not like you're down to your last can of tuna fish, darling. So I, no, I do nothing but count my blessings. I'm doing fine. I have to say I'm working from home. I'm lucky. Mm-hmm. I'm earning a regular paycheck. I'm being yeah. safe. I I adopted a dog this past summer. <clears throat> I mean, life could be a hell of a lot worse, which you know, brings me to one of my points is we're such big babies today. Yep. We are the biggest babies. You know, all these people, especially the Trumpers, will go on and on about patriotism and wave the flag and this and that. You know, based on their behavior today, if we're going to go back to World War, if they had to go back to World War II, uh, I don't want to conserve gasoline. I don't want to turn out my lights at night. I, you know, they would be, my kids got to go to war on the other side of the world. They are the, they are the biggest hypocrites, babies. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's just so <clears throat> exasperating. Um, it's just so exasperating. Yeah. But, well, we are showing our, again. <clears throat> we are unmasked, and it is not pretty. No. It is. It it is. It is shameful, and it is uh, to me uh, humiliating. Um, I, it's hard to you know say with great pride. Oh, I am an American. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know it, what is. Yeah, because Americans are not looking good as well, a people. What, what you're talking about today about the virus and how we're behaving or misbehaving uh, is right up. I mean, starting Friday night, uh, two things have happened since this weekend started. Since last weekend, um, I was invited to go with a friend or to the Rivers Club as his guest for dinner and it was just four, four of us two couples and and it was pretty good everybody's being safe and everything and we're how can you be safe you're wait 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 how are you safe you're indoors uh, mm-hmm. if you're eating well, you're maskless yes that's not uh, safe well the thing is the, the couple we're with we're sort of our pod and, and that's it. That's a, the extent of mine and my wife's social activity for the past few months. Um, and I know and it, it is stepping out there, but based on what happened Friday night, I think that was a mistake because there are idiots in this world, especially employees, who are putting people at risk. I don't know if they don't care or if they are are just ignorant. Or you know they're trying not. Well, what are they? I, I what they were like such as what they they were masked. Yeah, every, everybody's wearing masks. The, all the you know the staff and everything. And then the four of us were finishing up dinner, and all of a sudden, I think it was like the host just 
walked up right next to our table and said, so how was dinner? And I look up and he, he pulled his mask off so we could hear him. Well, <clears throat> that's another reason not to, well, I don't know. I, you know, I think we should all pretend we're bears if we can and, and hibernate uh, through this uh, winter. Read books, do stuff, be happy you're alive, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, seriously. That, that was a big slap in my face. Um, well, it, you now. deserved it for putting yourself in harm's way. Yeah, I, I know. But at the same time, you think that being an establishment that huh. they would know better. I mean, it's not the stupid hardware oh. store where I deal with a bunch of redneck white guys who are packing heat and think that and this happens at Home Depot. I think I told you that story a few months yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you just I don't know. I don't trust anybody right now. The, I think the, the smart way to proceed now is to assume that everybody you come into contact with is carrying the virus. Yeah, and 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 and, and frankly, you, we take our risks. We take our risks. I do. I've my son is out in the world. He has to go out and work, and um, I do let him into my house, but um, masked. And and I fed him the other night, but I I sat way way far away from him and opened a window. Um, That's my own kid. I mean, mean, yeah, but more importantly, I mean, I think is, and this is what I try to stress to people who kind of don't want to believe it, is you have to like maybe behave as if you may have it. Exactly. Don't make it, don't don't state it as you're trying to, like if I'm stating my opinion with people at work, you know, or anybody, I don't state, well, I'm trying to protect myself. It's like, no, I may have. I'm trying to protect you. Right. Right. I'm doing it for your sake, not my sake. And when you put it that way, people get a little less defensive. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. All right. But the other thing happens, my my mother-in-law called. She lives out near Greasewood, middle Trump country, country where everybody, and it's it's, the virus is going gangbusters over there. Sure. She's not feeling well. She still has friends who call, oh, let's go out to dinner, lunch. Can I come over and see your Christmas decorations and this and that? And I'm like saying, no, no. Well, does she, like, say no? Does, does she say no? Does she say no? She's having a very hard time. And her husband goes to church every Sunday where they do not wear masks. They and they do sing, not socially and distance. They, and they, you know, they do well, all that's, the church well, things. God help her. So, so, so if so, I said if Kenny kills you, how bad is he going to feel? Because that's basically what he's doing. Yeah, that's and unbelievable. It's, it's, oh and, and God, so, I feel for your wife. Anyway, okay, stop with the depressing stories. But, 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 but I do is, the know, depressing stories. But here's the thing: you know what? Because of people's reaction, I, I put this all at the feet of Donald Trump. Every one hundred percent, because if he had come out and 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 Led, Late. yeah. And said had okay, led. Like, we, we, yeah, yeah. If we said, and if he just said, "Look, guys, we're in for a big well, one." Of course. The ex, uh, yeah, and I, I want everybody to wear their masks. Yeah. Like I am going to be doing da 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 da. We wouldn't be having this conversation. Of right course, now. of course. He, the blood, the the 
tragedies of so many of these dead Americans rests totally on him and his administration and and Fox News and all the others who soft peddled it and made it into for people who needed to hear it not such a bad deal and a hoax and just like the flu and all of that and there's no doubt and as I said it should not be forgotten it should not be forgiven there is no doubt about it thank you all right I'm sorry thank you let me like Grant. Bye. Bye. Bye, you. Okay. And I have a a correction to make because you guys hold me to uh, account when I said, hey, there's not a Picasso museum. Well, there is, Ellen tells me. And she said, if we ever get to travel again, you might want to put on your list the Picasso Museum in Antibes near Nice. You know, I've been in Nice. <laughs> I can't believe I I went to an amazing museum somewhere around there, and I'm blanking on the name of it. Um, it was near a, a, a small little walled medieval city called St. Paul de Vence, where um, Picasso used to actually go in the summer and paint and stayed in a place that had some of his stuff on the hanging on the wall. Anyway, Ellen says it is a small but lovely repository of many Picasso pieces. Um, wonderful. Well, yeah, small. So I am cor- okay. I'm correct in that it's the largest. The Warhol, at least that's what Tom used to say. The Warhol is the largest single artist museum in the world. Um. Bill says there's a Salvador Dali Museum in Clearwater, Florida. Okay. So there are, but they are not of, I guess, the breadth and depth of the Warhol um, here. Um, Before I get into this other thing, which I really definitely want to do, I also... There is a piece in the New York Times today about uh, the Post-Gazette, and you might want to look it up. It is long, and uh, it is about the um, the charges against the former head of the newspaper guild, the union that represents uh, so many of the uh, – workers at the PG, Michael Fuoco, who uh, you may recall um, after charges of uh, sexual harassment uh, became known, he uh, resigned his position as the union head and he resigned from the paper as well. Well, there is an almost full page account that is plenty eye-opening and um, sort of jumps on the National Newspaper Guild for refusing to um, look into this for well over a year. Um, It it faults the paper itself for refusing to take uh, action. 
And uh, wow, I mean, it says that not only did he harass women at the paper, but he um, he taught uh, journalism, um, you know, or lectured at uh, Point Park and also at the University of Pittsburgh, where he preyed on young students there. Uh, one student at Point Park was 22 years old. Um, he coaxed into a sexual relationship while she was even a stringer for the Post-Gazette, she became pregnant by him and uh, had his child. And that is uh, confirmed by court documents because he's paying child support. Um, it's it's a really astonishing uh, a piece because Michael Fuoco was you know this uh, you know tough union guy that we'd see on the news. Um, they call him in this piece charismatic. They say he was a big foot crime reporter. And they say that people at the paper were not eager to cross him because they feared his power. And it's it's something as if the poor folks at the Post Gazette have any more uh, troubles. Uh, have uh, unbelievable. There's a few things in the article which I would. Um, argue with. One is this, the Post-Gazette remains one of the best local newspapers left in America. I do not think, I hope that's not true. Um, it says the staff, which has gone 14 years without a raise, still competes for Pulitzers, even as members grudgingly produce society stories about the lavish Kentucky Derby party hosted by John Robinson Block one of the eccentric twins who inherited and still run the paper. But the most astonishing thing was the last I had read was that when Fuoco resigned, there was a new um, election called for who would run the guild at the Post-Gazette right now. And I recall reading um, in some local outlet that it was a close race, but that the winner had been a 28-year-old black reporter named Lucretia Wimbley. The vote was 55 to 52. The New York Times reports, and I'll just read it. <clears throat> and this I did not know. <clears throat> but a week later, a week after Wembley is... Uh, is elected to lead the union. In a miniature echo of Rudy Giuliani's Pennsylvania misadventures, Post-Gazette reporters received an email. Some mail-in ballots, apparently, had not come with return addresses. This is for the union election. And were therefore, well, invalid. The election was open to challenge, 
And so the acting president, a guy named Ed Blazina, announced that the election was void and would be rerun. And as Mark Belko, the real estate reporter, wrote, Wow, on the same day the Guild sends out a statement demanding more diversity in the newsroom, it removes the African-American woman as its president. Outrageous. So, the woman who won, this young black woman, is not in charge of the union at this point. For now, the union is in the hands of Mr. Blazina, a longtime pal of Fuoco's. And when Blazina was asked by the New York Times, weren't you aware of what Fuoco was up to? His reputation, certainly. It was known. Women were warned to stay away from him. Here was Blazina's response. I know nothing firsthand. And then when asked again if Fuoco's aggressions against women at union gatherings were not known, Blazina said this, I can tell you he wasn't handsy with me, which is about as disgusting a thing for this jerk who I don't know to say. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The New York Times piece says it was they, just looking into it a little bit, found a startling picture of a man repeatedly accused of abusing his position. What a hellhole that place is. Oh. So this thing I want to go into is about now that there are these vaccines and some people are going to start getting them, the big question is who? And the reality is, is there's a bunch of people whose job it is. There's a committee whose job it is to figure that out, to set the timetable of who's going to get it first, second, third. And last month, this committee voted, and they voted to put essential workers Well, they indicated that they would put essential workers ahead of people 65 and older. Now, a lot of people think that's not right. I just want to let you know that the, the guidelines are still not set. 
and there's little doubt that healthcare workers and those in nursing facilities will almost certainly be at the head of the line. But that is not necessarily what everybody thinks should ethically be done. So I, I just you imagine having this power. Imagine having this burden to figure this out. And what the choice comes down to is what do you prioritize? Do you prioritize preventing death or do you prioritize curbing the spread of the virus? Because if your goal is to prevent death, you would definitely bias the vaccinations toward older Americans because they're the ones dying the most. So those first vaccines would go to them after health, everybody agrees frontline healthcare workers get it first. But then, yeah, nursing homes. But if your goal is to reduce the rate of infection, to slow this damn thing down, then you would give it to essential workers, especially essential workers who interact with people, bus drivers, store clerks, police, emergency responders, right? But what constitutes an essential worker? Oh my God. If you look at the guidelines, 70% of Americans are essential workers. <laughs> it's, it's ludicrous. Yeah, because of the economy, yeah, everybody does a job that, you know, the economy, jobs in production, jobs in, um, my God, building and maintenance, the people who clean, those poor guys, they should be up front. Certainly all healthcare workers. But who gets it first? The World Health Organization say, says that reducing death should be the priority and that older and sicker people should go before essential workers. And that is something that most European countries are agreeing with. However, others will say you know, within essential workers, essential work is often low paid work. It's service work, but it's work that is essential. It's always blown my mind how essential work, the guys that pick up the garbage, the guys that clean, essential work is often low paid work which makes no sense to me at all. It seems to me essential work should be high paid work. The people who get paid a lot in this country often would not be called essential. The world would go on without them. 
So different states are going to do different things because the CDC can come up with these guidelines, but the governors are not required to follow those guidelines. So that depending on what state you're in, and you're in Governor Wolf's and Rachel Levine's state, so it might be interesting to listen to their their news conference today. Louisiana, its preliminary plan puts prison guards and food processing workers ahead of teachers and grocery employees. Now you could say, what? Nevada prioritizes education, teachers, and public transit workers over those in food processing and retail. So people are going to come up with different things, and depending on what state you live in and whatever they decide will have an impact on when you will be able to get uh, the virus. An expert in ethics, though ethics and health policy at the University of Pennsylvania, Harold Schmidt, says that it is reasonable to put essential workers ahead of older adults, given their risks, and, and this is the other thing that needs to be discussed, and that they are disproportionately minorities. Older people are disproportionately white. And why are they white? They're white because they have lived in a society that has enabled them to live longer. Instead of giving now additional health benefits to those who already have had more of them throughout life, he says, we should start to level the playing field a bit. Look at things like who's living in poor communities in overcrowded conditions, who don't have vehicles, who have to take the bus, who are impoverished. Should not those people be put front and center. Eighteen states have said that they would apply that thinking to their priorities. Tennessee, amazingly, has indicated that it will reserve some of its earliest allotments of vaccine for disadvantaged communities. So, somebody like me, I should be way at the end. I am old, I have asthma, I'm all those things, but I have the ability to safely secure myself in my home. So not all old people, an age, the age itself should not be the, the deciding factor. You know, rich old people who are safe, damn it. 
so much safer. No, poor old people should get it. Old people who live with multi, in multi-generational families, they all should get it. But if this country does what it has always done, that is not the way this is going to happen. I'm just saying. Father Joseph writes, let's not forget that after the inauguration, the wheels will come off the Trump wagon. Insiders will publish tell-alls. There will be lawsuits against him and the banks will call in their loans. In two years, the GOP will turn from him and look toward a more polished version, perhaps a David Duke in lipstick. Mm -hmm. However, this time, the forces for good will be ready to mobilize the vote. You are such an optimist. <laughs> I hope you're right. <laughs> I need to see it play out. I'm not so sure. You remember I put a call out to Dave to see if he was okay because he had contacted, contracted the virus. He writes, Dave from Washington here. I was going to call in, but I have nothing to say. You know, Dave, that doesn't stop other people from calling in. And in fact, it doesn't stop me from doing the show. Jeez. So I'm just saying hi, he says. People are crazy and times are strange, but all in all, I'm doing well. Good job, decent house, dependable car, everything else up to me with Trump on his way out and the door things and a vaccine on the horizon. Looking up, hope you're both. Well, you had it, didn't you? Or am I mixing you up with somebody else? Tell Sally I said hello. No. I mean, yes, of course I will. <laughs> I said no. Um, Susan writes, Lynn, years ago you gave me the idea to give money here and there to what we now call essential workers. I hand out 10s and 20s here and there to all of these poor people making minimum wage. You would think I'd given them a 1,000. They are so grateful and surprised. Yeah, my favorite phrase, keep the change. After you you know you pay with a for something you know two ninety eight with a twenty dollar bill yeah keep the change and then you hightail it out because it's you don't want to embarrass anybody it's a wonderful thing to do because it makes I'll tell you it makes you feel good it does but we shouldn't have to subsidize people like that people should not have to rely on uh, charity. There was, and I, it's pretty tough, and I will share some of it with you. There was uh, something in the Washington Post uh, written by a guy who is in a nursing home. And it is mind-blowing. My heart so goes out to him. And I will read you his words. His name is Bruce McGillis. He is in a nursing home in Ohio. And he's talking about the vaccine. I'm happy they put us at the top of the list, but I doubt it's going to make much of a difference in here. Can I get the vaccine today? Will I have immunity by tomorrow? Because that's the kind of timeline we need in this nursing home. More than half of this place is COVID positive. I'm one of about 80 
residents here and 30 got sick this week. The first thing I do when I wake up is look down the hallway for the big plastic sheet. That's what they use to block off the COVID area. They sectioned off a whole wing a few days before Thanksgiving. Then they blocked another hallway earlier this week. And that plastic sheet keeps moving closer. I'm trying not to panic, but where am I supposed to go? It's not like I can jump up and make a run for it. I'm in a wheelchair. I haven't been outside for months. I'm trapped, just like everybody else in this place. We are at the mercy of this virus. We sit in here and we wait. That's been the story of the last nine months. It's boredom and then dread. They stopped allowing visitors in March. So we lost contact with the outside world. Then it was no more group meals in the cafeteria. So we just eat everything alone in our room. No more trips to physical therapy. No more access to the lounge or computer area. My world keeps getting smaller. I have my little room. I have my old nine-inch TV. I play Sudoku and watch Turner Classic movies and stare out the window at the woods. I check the latest COVID numbers every few hours on my phone. All of Ohio is out of control. I keep reading about how more than 100,000 people have died in places just like this. And I don't want to be one of them. I make it from one sunrise to the next. I keep breathing. That's it. That is the whole goal. I'm only 64, but I have a lot of issues because of my accidents. I used to drive a truck, and one night I was sitting at a red light with the Sunday paper when I got plowed by a drunk driver. He was a newspaper delivery truck. I'd been here 23 months trying to get better and get home. My doctor told me I have at least nine of the markers that are bad for COVID. I asked him, are there vitamins I can take, exercises? What should I do? And he said, just make sure you don't get it. I don't let anybody come near me anymore. I have a little dresser by my door where the nurse aides put my medication and my meals. I stay away. I wait and then put on my gloves, and that's how I eat. And he goes on and on and on about when nurses he doesn't know, like, come in to check his vitals and how he goes nuts. I'm a hard ass about this stuff, and I'm not even a little bit sorry. I can't afford to take chances. And he talks about how he he calls um, everybody. He calls the CDC hotline. He calls, he, he says, I'm starting to get desperate. I call the county ombudsman. He's supposed to be our advocate. But he says, yeah, nursing homes are going through outbreaks right now. And he says, uh, you know, nothing I can do. I called a few local Catholic priests. I called a number I found on Facebook for Dr. Fauci, but that was just another message machine. 
The Ohio Department of Health finally got back to me after four or five days. They took down a report, said they would notify a supervisor, but they are probably 200 of those reports waiting around. I haven't heard back. Seems like everybody has just surrendered. I get this sense sometimes that people are thinking, oh, it's just another nursing home. It's not a real tragedy. They're already at the end of their road. And he says for a lot of people in here, that is true. This is their last stop. But they're still people. They're still alive. There's no human connection for any of them. No life, no hope. We're wilting away in here. Can you understand that? You start feeling like you've been forgotten. Where is everyone? Do people understand what's happening here? Do they care? I'm coming to the realization that it's up to me to watch out for myself. I found a plastic picnic blanket in one of the linen closets, and I'm going to tape it up over my door. Total isolation might be my only chance. I probably have to make it at least another month to the vaccine, and I guess that's when we'll become a priority. Bruce McGillis. So, no complaints from the likes of me. No complaints from most, I don't know, I don't know your situations, from an awful lot of you. We are a nation that is filled with suffering, terrified people in extraordinarily precarious situations, life and death situations. Some in nursing homes. Some who have to go out to work to make piddling, piddling bits of money and then go home to a crowded apartment. That vaccine needs to go to vulnerable people and it does not need to go to people who have money and the means to protect themselves. And I don't see anybody saying that. For once, the privileged should get to the back of the line. That's all I have to say. Talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.